0: Lester, welcome back. Hey, man. Glad to have you on again. Um, I was just listening, actually reviewed episode two that we released yesterday of this series. And I don't know if you've listened to it yet, but it's one of my, I mean, this entire series is I knew was one of my favorite conversations yet, but to actually review it was really interesting. Um, So for you guys listening, if you haven't seen episode two of this series yet, go listen to it now. (laughs)
1: It's, it's interesting, like looking at some of the comments on YouTube, people are like, um, are you gonna cover the book more? And I'm like, <laughs> <"No."> <laughs> I'm like,, I'm like, we've done twelve hours so far on the book, and uh, we're about halfway done and it's all only about the book. And a lot of people are running into difficulty finding the book, which is a problem. I gotta look yeah. at having my copy scanned. I don't know, I want to help people get the book.
0: Somehow. Just PDF it out. yeah,
1: yeah, PDF it out, so I gotta look into that.
0: Well, so are we where should we jump back in today? Well, we when the last thing we
1: were talking about, we were we we're talking about like the role of the London money market and the role of basically short-term capital, that the sophistication of the the money market that evolved in the height of the gold exchange standard in like Late 1800s, around 1860, 1870. And we, at the end of the last session, we like said, let's take a moment and step inside this functioning standard to see how did it work. And again, if we're trying to look at it through the lens of what can it teach us about Bitcoin and a Bitcoin standard, which is again the whole reason for this exercise, is to figure out have some sense, look at, use this this book as a prism to look in the future, how will a Bitcoin standard work? Mm -hmm. And so much of that for me, like the thing that I keep trying to simulate in my mind is the functioning of credit. And so I want to talk more about how the credit market worked under the gold standard in London and how it was different than the credit market today. That'll shed so much light on what interest rates mean today. The biggest difference of course, you know was the London money market was centered in London and it wasn't as international and and you know it was it, it London was the hubs that's like mm-hmm. one obvious difference but there's this there's this other difference that I was never clued into before, and this is what we're going to talk about today, which is the maturity structure and the duration of of loans and I had no I had never understood until I started reading Pal writing, and then through some um, Twitter exchanges from Natural Money BTC about the effect of maturation construction. And let me try to say that word again, the effect of maturation construction Mm. and the effect that has on the overall liquidity of the credit system. So like, I just want to jump forward and, and, and lay out the conclusion. And now we'll go back and work our way towards that conclusion. But the conclusion is that long credit durations, which is what we live in now, make a system more unstable. Hmm. That long credit durations are evidence of an illiquid system of lenders, of borrowers who aren't qualified to borrow at shorter shorter durations, so they stretch out the duration. And, And to me, it's a system that is trying to contract because people can't afford to expand the system. So to compensate, loans get longer and longer Mm. to accommodate less and less qualified borrowers because it keeps their payments down. And and, and the reason why we have to do that is we have to keep expanding and inflating the credit bubble. And so long-duration loans are... The problem with long-duration loans is that they're incapable of taking the future state of the economy and factoring them in how do you know what's going to happen in 30 years? how do you know the state of this borrower in 30 years? how do you know the state of the country in 30 years? how do you know the state of inflation in 30 years? so these long duration loans can't take any of that into account and they subject the the to inflation risk and in the state in in in, in our case the lenders are us if we're buying bonds if we're the people or their governments Um, so how is that, how did we get here and how is that different in the, in the end of the last session, we talked about this hypothetical where you're like, um, I think the, I think we were talking about maybe you grow cotton or you grow some, some staple, some agricultural staple, and you sell it to a middleman who's going to take it to the market and they're going to ship it overseas. And then you give them a bill and then you can, you can take that, you can take that bill and you can bring it into, um, a bank and you can get paid today for a bill, which actually isn't supposed to get paid for like 30 or 90 days. And that's a, that's the essence of credit in this market. That is the essence of credit. And so in it, in, for the service that the bank is, Is providing by paying you now for a for a bill that really shouldn't be paid for 30, 90 days, they're going to take a small fee. And that is it, that therein lies the interest. That's how the bank makes their loan. And then they can re-discount that that's called discounting. And then they can re-discount that loan to someone else who's looking to loan money to the bank. And then they'll make a spread, they'll they'll pay slightly less interest to that person than they they charge for themselves. And this short-term. Bill's credit was the essence of the money market in London. And as you can see, we're talking about durations that are 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. Not only is it different in duration, it's just it just totally different in the sense of like what the credit represents. It doesn't represent a loan or unsecured credit. it represents a sale of real goods into the economy and a purchase of real goods into the economy. And so these self-liquidating loans, have a natural, there's a natural rate at which they govern the amount of credit that can be created because the amount of credit created under this system actually reflects the sale of real goods and the ability to purchase real goods in the economy. And so you can't have a credit system built on this type of credit that outgrows the real economy. And so much of what, so much of economic commentating so much like armchair quarterbacking on what's the Fed doing, what can the the Fed do, how did the Fed do, how did the Fed do in 1929, how did they do in the crash? So much of economic analysis focuses on prescriptions for what banks should do in a crisis. I see a lot of threads like, well, they should do this and then they should do this in a crisis. And I think that that's like, the reason why our system is wrong It's not wrong because of what they do or don't do during a crisis. It's wrong because of what they do and don't do during a boom. Mm -hmm. And a a liquid system based on short-term credit and credit that represents largely real sales, that's a system that prevents depressions in the first place. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: If you get to a depression, you're saying, what should the bank do? They've already lost the game. It's already too late. It's like, it's like uh, talking about what the bank, what, what the fed should do now. It's like, what's the effect of like pulling out a lighter in a blizzard? Nothing, nothing. You should have just not gone outside or or, or worn warmer clothes. But this, these are all sort of like missing the point. I feel like what Palli was talking about, and we're going to get into some of his other work was about a banking structure that prevents these being in the situation that we're in in the first place. And the situation that we are in is that we are walking the currency towards the graveyard in an unavoidable way. And he predicted this in 1936 in an essay that he wrote called liquidity. And I want to take a sidestep to talk about this essay um, because it is sort of like the, the ligament that binds this whole theoretical construct of credit under the gold standard with like, on the boots on the ground, how does credit work, and how could credit work under a Bitcoin standard? Because again, I it's it's sort of it's sort of it's been on my mind. I said it in a couple of sessions ago that like, how do you get? Are you searching for yield on your on your Bitcoin? Do you want yield? Do you want do you want it to work for you? Does someone want to use it? Does someone want to borrow it to start a business? If you want all these things, then the then the market's going to have to figure out a way to connect the two of you, and then that's. The beginning of a credit market, um, and the banking system is going to have to be structured in a way that, like, um, doesn't blow up or doesn't become forced to kick all of its credit up to the sovereign level, mm. which is where we are now. And 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 Pali predicted all of this in thirty six. Mm especially in this essay it's a long essay but it's called liquidity one of the problems with pally's writing when, when, when people get into it liquidity by the way is available online as a PDF I think one of the problems with his writing is that he has like all these profound realizations and they're they're interspersed with uh, what quite frankly passages I don't understand there I just think he's just beyond me you know it's it's like um not I think he's beyond me we're talking about someone who is a a um, spent their life studying and working practically in the public and private sector and has seen the greatest economic upheavals of the century and was, you know, on the front lines. And it's a lifetime of, of his knowledge. He's putting it in his writing. So there's these passages that I pour over and pour over. And I think like one thing I can do to maybe help people is just like, I just did a super cut of liquidity and I took, I took all of like some of the hits and I put them into a, a coherent paragraph with some of the stuff that i it was beyond me i took that out so let me read let me read from this liquidity at first sight is, and by the way he's talking about the liquidity principles for banking and this is again real, think about this in terms of what would what would a bitcoin how could a bitcoin based bank function according to liquidity principles that would keep that bank functioning hmm. okay i'll read liquidity at first sight is the capacity to fulfill financial obligations This, in turn, is not identical with cash reserves. The standards of both the cash ratio and the liquidity of earning assets are determined by a bewildering number of factors. They depend, for example, on such facts as the confidence of the public in the banks Optimism or pessimism of cyclical character are even more important. Established standards of what is proper practice exert a great deal of irrational influence, too. Still more important is the general monetary organization of the country. Liquidity of banks is entirely meaningless, is an entirely meaningless concept in a progressive currency inflation, the ideal of which is to escape the impending depreciation of liquid funds. A currency unit with widely fluctuating gold content allows the banks to compromise substantially the standards of credit discrimination. The very term liquidity is tied up with a currency system which limits the amount of available cash according to the rules of the game. Most of the confusion arises, however, from the fact that liquidity is generally thought of as the ability or the readiness to liquidate. However, observance of liquidity rules do not imply preparation for liquidation. On the contrary, liquidity means preparation for the avoidance of liquidation. The periodic liquidation of each individual or short-term bank transaction should not be confused with the liquidation of any part of the total. A liquid structure never liquidates. Only the illiquid one comes under the pressure of liquidation. Perfect liquidity means that for any length of time, all financial obligations are fulfilled without net liquidation of capital. A liquid society has adjusted its obligations to the flow of its income, both in amounts and in maturity dates, so that forced sales should not occur. That's a dense, That is, it's dense, it's theoretical and it's dense. And we're going to go more into it. Do you, do you, do you start to see where this is going? Is this?
0: Yeah. A couple of comments there. So I guess one would be, it seems like, you know, Mises wrote about the crack up boom too, that effectively once you start this process of currency debasement, that it has to unwind one way or another eventually. And it seems like Pauly's kind of pointing to the same thing. Um, And this idea of, Credit being used to facilitate real transactions in the real economy, right delivery of real goods and services this is as I understand it the original twin purpose of banking right it was it was maturity matching of the, of lenders and borrowers and custody right that's all the bank was really doing originally before it started to become overly financialized and I guess a question I would throw back here is: the, so these long maturation constructions, these—I'm I'm guessing these result from debt restructurings over time. Where, well, like for example, like the thirty-year thirty-year home mortgage, just mm-hmm. as an example.
1: Surprise! It didn't come into being until until it was a reaction to the depression. Right. So, like before the depression. So this is this will the next thing that I read, and the next thing that I'll be getting into in my own my own rabbit hole is I just bought a big book of mortgages in the 20s. Um, but in general, mortgages were, I mean, there was a housing bubble in the 20s, uh, a real estate bubble, but mortgages were five to 10 years. Mm. A couple of things that were really different. Not only were they five to 10 years, uh, loan to value ratios were usually 50%. Mm. So that And they were interest only payments with this big They called it a bullet payment at the end, which is Mm -hmm. the principal. So you pay interest only, and then you save the principal. The the loans were designed to allow you to live in a home, pay interest, and then spend those five years saving the principal, which you Mm -hmm. should be able to save on your income, and then you pay off the principal at the end. And because your loan-to-value ratio is only 50%, if for some reason you fell behind, you couldn't save enough, the bank could still sell the home. They could take it from you, sell the home, and the bank is protected they were fully liquid. They could they could liquidate this one transaction, but it wouldn't affect their 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 balance sheet because they never you never borrowed more than half the value. They sell the home and they get the other half back. Mm-hmm. So there was a huge um, housing bubble in the twenties, and there were like over a million mortgages that were underwater. And the banks were like, "No, we're not. We're not going to um, rewrite your mortgage. We're not going to renegotiate your mortgage." So that's when the um, A couple government programs were established to buy these mortgages and then rewrite these mortgages. Uh, The Home um, Mortgage Loan Corporation and the FHA came out of um, government programs in the 20s. They rewrote these as 20-year mortgages. So now you're now you're taking these people whose homes Mm are underwater and you're increasing the the, you're increasing the duration. You're making them 20-year mortgages, but now you're making them. Amortizing mortgages, meaning the principal gets paid along with the interest, and this is protects the lenders. In order to buy these mortgages, the government issued bonds. People bought the bonds; those financed purchasing these mortgages. Now, I was also re-listening to some of our episodes, and we we're talking about the inevitability of this system. Like, if you came out of this system, you're say you're one of a million people with these mortgages in the 1920s, 1930s you know, they saved a million mortgages. A million people got to stay in their homes. Mm-hmm. They, sold, they sold bonds. The FHA was actually profitable. People, the bonds performed, people stayed in their homes. And so I think if your time horizon is one generation maybe 2 or 3 this actually is a good system for the for if you're within that window which is a long window a lot of people got to stay in their homes and start building value of the US the US housing market because they didn't crash even further but this is exactly what Paoli is talking about in 1936 which is that government debt got issued to pay for these and now you cut to we're now 100 years down the line and the central bank, the central bank. If you go to the uh, Fed website, central bank has two point six two trillion in mortgage-backed securities on its books. So, talk about an illiquid system. An illiquid system is one that, that I mean, that is an illiquid system. The the the, the central bank, now that they've started to prop up the value of these assets, there's no way they can ever sell the assets. Selling the assets would crash the housing market Mm -hmm. and crash the value of these assets upon which all the debt is structured. And so they've got an inventory that they can never offload. And it began way back in the 20s when they started issuing government debt to, to make the loans longer, to accommodate people to stay in their homes. I don't think there's anything... Bad about what they did. It's just inevitable. It just led to. It just inevitably led to this. It's so inevitable.
0: Yeah, because we're addicted to debt, right? We want the easy way out. And again, um, debt has always provided that. It's the way to kick the can down the road. So this, this is essentially back to that original concept of delaying volatility, right? When there was volatility in the market. That wanted to clear out some of these underwater mortgages or whatever else uh, government stepped in to delay the volatility, essentially by extending mm-hmm. mortgages, re- restructuring debt, debt restructuring. Yeah. So they're extending mortgages into the future, further into the future, thus introducing greater uncertainty, as you said, mm-hmm. you know, the further you're looking out into the future, the more uncertainty there is. This is the nature of reality. And in effect, this is an injection of hidden risk into the economy, right? And a dependence, yeah. a dependency on debt um, that we are, I guess, at some semblance of a peak of today. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nightig. NIDIG's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, NIDIG is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, NIDIG has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So, whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider NIDIG your single source solution for everything Bitcoin.
1: You've started hearing headlines. This was uh, before the pandemic. Started hearing headlines about um, five and six year car loans. People are financing car loans further and further out, long long past the time when they want to drive the car, but they just uh-huh. you know they can't afford payments on a shorter time frame, and so it just makes it just again um, maturity construction is is a way to hide so so. Many big problems. If you look even at like, um, I'm just going to look something up here. If you look at um, government debt, they they've they've managed to the 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 U.S. has managed to make the 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 maturity construction of U.S. debt is so much longer than the political cycle, Mm -hmm. and that's that's one of the ways in which all of the all of the 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 issues with our own indebtedness, like I know that we talk about like the 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 recent stimulus, 3 trillion, whatever it is, 1.9 trillion, 6 trillion from the last year. If you say to yourself, like, like right now, you can go to the you can go to the government website and and actually they'll tell you how much interest the government is paying on its debt. Mm-hmm. Um The current average interest that the government's paying right now is 1.592%. That's on, if you go to Mm -hmm. fiscaldata.treasury.gov. So let's say that government, let's say that the rate of borrowing for the government overnight, let's say, because right now when we're recording this, rates are going up. The 10-year went up to 1.9 today, 1.8, 1.9. Let's say suddenly that the cost of borrowing went, it was at 1.5. Let's say tomorrow, suddenly 3%. The government goes up 3%. And the, last year, the government's interest costs were $583 billion. So if interest goes up 3%, doesn't that mean that the government now is going to pay a trillion in interest? And the answer is sort of, but not really. Because only one um, of all the government debt, there's only $1.79 trillion that matures in the next 12 months. And so, if rates double, there's only that small part would get would be refinanced at the new rate. The debt mm-hmm. service, you know, it's so so there there that that would make a um, a difference of cost about 25 billion extra. If, if rates doubled right now, it would add an extra 25 billion to the total debt, which really isn't that much. And this is how a politician today can spend a fuckload more money. And they won't even the US won't even feel the effects until you know maybe they can borrow, maybe they can borrow mm-hmm. on, on 10 or 30 years. And then it's it's not until they have to roll that debt into a more expensive rate where you feel it. And it's so invisible, it's so creeping and it's so invisible. I mean, and by the way, the Fed monetized a couple weeks ago. I was just looking at, you know, they published these, these, these numbers weekly. Last week. They, they, they monetize 19 billion alone. So a 25 billion increase in the federal indebtedness is like totally not a big deal. It's kind of like these things actually aren't going to be a big deal until suddenly they're a massive deal until mm-hmm. you just can't hide it anymore.
0: Right.
1: So it's, it's, it's the maturation construction and duration is like a very, very convenient political tool to hide a ton of extra, extra spending that one day, you know, suddenly you'll suddenly, suddenly this 543 billion of interest we have, it will, it will be over a trillion at some point. It will Mm -hmm. be over a trillion at some point, but it, but it's, but it's not going to be next year. And it's probably not even going to be when, when Biden's in office. Um, It's interesting that this essay liquidity came out in the same year as Keynes' general theory of interest, mm. employment, and money. And it was just eclipsed. You know I mean? This random small essay by a small economist, it just didn't, you know, it just didn't. The, the two thing, the two, the,
0: two, the two works couldn't be more opposite. Well, one, you know, Keynes's work is effectively apologism or an excuse for the state to monopolize money and continue down the current path. Whereas Paliu's work is an indictment of it. So yeah, and, it's obvious yeah, which it, one gets picked up, you know, the one that fits the mainstream or the state narrative, I guess.
1: Right, in the in the middle of in the middle of a massive effort to reconstruct the economy through massive intervention, Paley mm-hmm. writes this essay which says which is openly refuting the idea that yep. it's constructive in any way for the government to finance public works, to do agricultural subsidies, industrial subsidies. Yep. Specifically, the problem is by selling by selling public securities to the banking system, and again, he just going back to the to the passage we read earlier. This is um, a, a currency unit with widely fluctuating gold content allows the bank to compromise substantially the standards of credit discrimination. Um, this is the 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 concept that liquidity practices of the banks are actually predicated upon a money. That can't be infinitely debased.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, 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 a, a, a liquid banking system that can, that has within it the power to avoid um, crashes and depressions, can't function without a money that has limits. But once you introduce a money that has limits, then there kind of is no, um, there's no way for the banks to. In one of our earlier episodes, we talked about incentives and the game theory of abuse of credit. Well, if there's if there's um, a money that has no limits, then does it behoove a bank to observe like, sound liquidity practices when another bank doesn't have to and can grow much larger? No, by it's, not doing it's, it?
0: it's heads I win tells you lose for the bank, right? Right. They get, they get to gamble. uh And if things go bad, then they can just roll it on up to the central bank. And that's what we've
1: that's that's it's 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 what he predicted has has happened, which is that once the debt once this long term debt becomes trapped and ossifies within the system, it will be forever unpayable. Mm -hmm. And then the only way out is more debt, which leads to more debt. And then then the then 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 the then the the as um as um, uh, Greg Foss has been saying, then the currency is the error term and that's how you make right. it all match.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The only way out is default, whether implicit yeah. or explicit, implicit via inflation or explicit in an outright default or re- default or restructuring.
1: It, it reminds me of, did you follow anything with this um, Solana hack, this ETH wormhole hack from this, no. this week?
0: No, no.
1: So, like, there's this um, protocol. It's Wormhole. It's a bridge between Solana and ETH. I just said everything I know about it. I don't. I don't, <laughs> I don't follow these things. You, you now know everything that I know about it. But um, someone hacked it. They tricked this 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 protocol into having Solana think that it had deposited 120 ETH, hundred twenty thousand ETH, and then so then it withdrew. It tried to withdraw them. It drew, withdrew everything. Uh, withdrew like ninety thousand ETH, which was like worth three hundred twenty million at the time, and it's to me, it's it's really important to take note that all monetary systems are constantly under attack,
0: mm-hmm. always,
1: mm-hmm. always under attack. Like someone, someone reading the 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 the, the wormhole smart contracts is like no different than a banker looking really closely at Basel III and figuring out how do we do some sort of, you know, like Snyder-esque off-balance sheet construction. You know, it's the same, it comes from the same place in your brain. Yes. Every monetary system will always be under attack by people trying to exploit loopholes.
0: Yeah, this is life, right? Life is trying to overcome constraints constantly. So in economic life, if money is the primary constraint, then humans will devise any method possible to earn themselves a disproportionate share of the money or to overcome the constraints it places on them, whether that's credit, whether that's deferred settlement, whether that's a wormhole bridge hack, whether that's central banking, this is just the human proclivity to try to get something for nothing. And and it's what
1: it's what brings me back to to Bitcoin time and time again, because um, it's the system that doesn't reward there's no there's no reward. Mm -hmm. There's there's no reward to be figured out by gaming it.
0: And that's the thing about Bitcoin is like that's its core value prop, is you cannot game it. Right? Your incentives are to just comply with its rules. If you try to game it, you get burned. Your, your Lowry interview has like so many,
1: so, so much knowledge, but there, but, but it speaks to me when he talks about physics being the protocol that you can't, what you, you can dislike exactly. it. You can't opt, opt out. Of it. <laughs> you can't opt out of it. And I, I think, I think Bitcoin is the same thing. I know they're not perfect analogies, but I, but I feel in my heart that Bitcoin is the same as the physical laws of the universe. You can re, you can reject it. You can say mm-hmm. it's immortal. But just like as Lowry says, if you if you get shot in the heart, you're going to bleed. With Bitcoin, it's so powerful that if you don't, I, I feel like it is it is almost a law of nature. Yeah, the, the draw of that scarcity is just almost a law of nature.
0: Well, as you just described, we could say it's a law of human nature that people are always trying to game the rules, right? We're always searching for loopholes or exploitations in that world. The database or money that is totally resistant to exploitation and has immutable rules, that wins, right? People ultimately, you can't game it, you can't beat it, so you have to join it type of thing. Thank you. You, you just connected it. You, you just connected it. The law
1: is, that is the law. I'm going to repeat what you just said because it's so powerful. The law is that people are always everywhere looking to exploit every single loophole that exists. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a system that that is not exploitable, it becomes so much more powerful, Absolutely. Because no one, no one gets an unfair I mean, fuck, at least Wormhole got patched. <laughs> I mean, they patched it. It's fixed. The Fed's vulnerability has been in plain sight for the last hundred years, and it's not patched. It's worse. So I think it's, I think it's cool to consider the current system, because the current system is the reaction to the gold standard. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not just in terms of like what money is at the top of the money pyramid, but it's the what type of credit does this money actually support and how can then that credit itself, it'll, that, the, the type of credit, it'll either protect the system or it'll impair the system. And then in the case of gold and I think Bitcoin, it incentivizes, it incentivizes a liquid banking structure. And in the case of fiat, I think it fully incentivizes a completely illiquid structure.
0: Yeah. And I think to connect this to the thread we were just on, it's like the entire central banking fiat currency complex is an attempt to exploit gold, right? Or to to create a loophole in gold in a way. Gold is just this transnational, transpersonal disciplinary force, but through the coordinated coordination, coordinated efforts, I guess, of central banks across time, they've managed to um, at least limit the amount of that limit the amount that constraint places upon them. Like specifically
1: to to seeing that gaming start to play out. You look at Paly's writing this, writing about his views on. liquidity practices of banks. He's writing it in 36 at a time when um, the gold standard number two is, the the, the second part of the gold standard is already failing and and not everyone is observing. He's not saying that this is how it is at the time. He's saying this is what would work. And I think he's starting to see banks drift away from like good liquidity practices and is saying, hey, here's where I think you're headed. And so, like, what we've evolved to is this system where the role of the bank is to step in and become the savior, especially in a time of panic. I think that the bank can do um, a better job by just maintaining its role as a liquid bank during a panic and not being looked to as the bank can solve every other problem.
0: I was just going to agree that the panic needs to play out, right? You need to let the market clear the errors. If you try to paper over the errors, you just delay their ultimate realization and worsen them.
1: Right, the the bank's job, the bank's job in a panic is to not become illiquid. That's their job. Mm-hmm. Their job isn't to bail everyone out. Their job is to make sure that the people who um, set some money aside can get that money.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe also their job is to lend free, freely at high interest rates. Like that was the prescription under the gold standards is when there's a panic, when there's a credit panic, raise interest rates, but loan to anyone who has good credit or had good, has good securities. You know, that was a the prescription then. It sounds so foreign to our ears. I don't know if it would work. I. It seems like that would work, but that yeah. was the prescription under the gold standard.
0: So yeah, sure. Do that if you want, but ultimately it should be the bank deciding from their own balance sheet with their own skin in the game, whether they should do that. It's not, you should bank, you should lend. You don't should a free market enterprise they decide what's best for their own business. This whole idea of coercing a bank to like go in and bail people out or lend to people. I just, I don't think that works. I, I, had a, I had a realization going
1: through this, which is I was like, oh, you know what the safety net is? The safety net is that when I fail, I can liquidate the rest of my assets into a liquid market. That's the safety net. Yeah, The safety net Savings. is not... Is the safety net is not um, never failing. The safety net is that I fail on my own. And then when I liquidate, the rest of the market is there to buy what I have left. Yep. Whereas the system we currently have tries to bail out everyone. But then when there's a massive failure, the market is completely illiquid and no one can sell because prices have fallen by exactly. 20 to 30%. So the safe the safety net is just maintaining liquidity for everyone else and making sure that we're never in a in a in a period where the bottom has fallen out.
0: That's such a good point that we are destroying the actual safety net in an, an attempt to create this artificial safety net of bailout.
1: Oftentimes, I think I mean my wife and I have talked a lot about our Bitcoin strategy and that we're we that we're mostly Bitcoin and I don't know we think like. Look, if we if we if we decide if we realize that we were wrong, um, we'll, we'll I guess we'll sell our house. That's like just the cold blooded truth, you know. We'll, we'll kids will have to live sleep in a living room in a in a studio somewhere. Like that's that'll be our reality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But we can't do that if there's a massive, um, if there's a huge correction in the housing market, then the one asset we have left that is non Bitcoin becomes worthless. So to me. I would rather have like uh, a market structure that's intact, and then my safety net is that I can liquidate into that market, not that I'm being bailed out. So, how can you construct a bank which, which definitionally can't fail? I think that's that's what is trying to prescribe and which only works if you have a limited cash money. So to me, it seems like Bitcoin is already building the foundation for a banking structure that could be operated in a way which by definition could never fail. And what he writes is, if bank credit is provided largely on short-term commercial lines, its total volume cannot exceed the demand for circulating capital proper, i.e. a sum commensurate with the amount of goods flowing to the market at prices which they then can be sold. And what this means is that with short-term commercial commercial credit, if it's based on real bills for sold, mm. for solid sold goods, then production and sales, that comes first. And then credit is built on top of sales that have already happened. So, by definition, the amount of credit can't be larger than the productive economy. Right. And then the credit spread that the bank earns, by discounting those bills and by allowing producers to borrow against future income, that is actually taken out of an amount that's already accounted for in the economy. Mm -hmm. And so... It's actually by definition, that's going to be actually the amount of credit is going to be smaller than the economy. And he, mm-hmm. he says this, as a matter of fact, bank credit should lag far behind this amount because not all such transactions need to be financed by banks. Not all who may need financing are sufficiently good risks and all commercial goods should be financed only with a substantial margin. At any rate, the total volume of circulating media is effectively limited by the observance of liquidity rules.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It is limited to a level far below the amount of dollars which represent the value of the circulating capital of the country.
0: And by extension, we would expect global debt to GDP to be, global debt to be less than global GDP on a hard money standard. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? exactly. Substantially less, as he's saying, commensurately, substantially less. Commensurately, uh, yes. And today, I think the number is 350% global debt to GDP, which is a, a consequence of fiat hmm There's two we have two
1: big sources of inflation in the world traditionally is bank credit and governments. And he's saying that on, on a on a liquid banking structure, you wouldn't you wouldn't have the bank credit inflation. You might still have the government inflation if they can convince you to use a different money. But I think this is a prescription for. Keeping inflation in check. And it gets back to what we we're saying at the beginning, which is that you can criticize a system not for what it does during a crisis, but for what it does during a prosperity. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Bitcoin provides the basis for a banking system, which can give us a functioning prosperity, which won't lead to a, a massive crash. So then he goes on, assuming that a breakdown might still occur, the very fact of a bank's liquidity would have the effect of reducing the impact of a depression. Banks would not get into trouble by definition. They would not incur losses. They would not suffer from panicky fear of the public, nor could they be forced into major liquidation. So long as the credit they granted has been of genuinely short-term character, their automatic repayment would not be in danger. If with decreasing trade, which of course would come from a depression, the volume of fresh credits would also be reduced. This deflationary process would be very mild Compared to the usual one in a crisis, because it does not involve the necessity of forced sales on any scale similar to that experienced under conditions of illiquidity. As a matter of fact, the intensity and length of the crisis depend largely on the resistance which the banking structure is able or not able to offer. An illiquid structure leads to a crash which a liquid one not only avoids for itself, but may actually soften for the rest of the community Mm. by being able to, quote, come to the rescue. Mm. So this is how I came to the idea that, wow. So like, yeah, in in a liquid structure, you could lower the impact of a depression because a massive system-wide depression wouldn't happen. You could have Mm. some people who are failing periodically, but at least there's a market to sell into. Beautiful. I mean, it's just,
0: you know... (laughs) So this whole concept of lender of last resort is a fiat attempt to supply something that the market supplies naturally. And if we keep, you push that too far, you totally destroy the actual, the actual savior, which is the market itself, right? The the liquid market mm -hmm, to sell into in times of crisis, it becomes totally illiquid and barren in times of crisis. Eventually when you've um, pushed this fiat game too far.
1: And just look at this, the, the balance of the central bank and all the, all the government debt that it holds, they can't sell that. Mm-hmm. There's no way they can ever sell that. Right. So by definition, they're, they're totally illiquid. They have assets that, that they can't unload.
0: And you're concentrating this property into fewer and fewer hands, right? So you're, you're driving centralization, you're driving wealth disparity, all these, all the negative socioeconomic consequences that, that flow from that. All because fiat, all, be, all because someone thought it was better to say, because I said so, than letting the market decide.
1: And then now, this, this now connects us. I've been saying for a long time in, in the series that, that breaking convertibility broke the very tools that we've now come to rely on, mm-hmm. these broken interest rate tools. So that's a theme that he hits again and again, and that he gets, it, gets into it in liquidity in this next passage the liquid structure limits the possibility of fluctuations by not allowing the banking machine to supply more currency than is compatible with the volume of goods forthcoming within a short time at given prices. And liquid banking makes it possible to exert influence by discount policy on the demand for bank loans, which proves inelastic under other conditions. So that's key. He's saying that that under non-liquid conditions, meaning essentially under a fiat endlessly inflation system, there is a persistent or an inelastic demand from bank loans. Everyone wants bank loans yep. regardless.
0: Yep. you are incentivized.
1: Yep. But a liquid system curbs demand for bank loans, curbs credit, curbs inflation, and moderates Price swings that that come about solely become a credit, solely, solely come come through credit expansion. A money, he said, he writes, a money market which serves largely long-term investment purposes is hardly capable of adapting its credit volume to changes in the rate of interest. And and it's because loans are not self-liquidating. And so how how can you how can you suddenly, oh, there's it looks like um we should reduce the volume of credit. Let's raise rates. Well, I've got someone who borrowed 7 billion from me at 3% for 30 years. I can't raise rates. They got to roll that. They got to roll that credit. You know, like a long-term credit structure at these low rates just can't adapt.
0: Yeah. No, it's an excellent point. What strikes me here is this, you know, one of the ostensible purposes of the central bank is price stability. And once again, you have another self-defeating aim. (laughs) embedded in central banking, right? That Mm -hmm. if we just had adequate liquidity in the system, we would curb demand for bank loans and thus moderate price swings that come from the credit expansion, which is what the central bank is exacerbating, right? They're exacerbating credit expansion and illiquidity, ultimately increasing price volatility, even though their stated aim is price stability. So it's just... Everywhere you look, right, this oxymoron of debt based money starts to manifest itself at different layers of the socioeconomic stack. Hey guys, I hope you found this episode valuable. At the What is Money Show, we are striving to deliver the most valuable knowledge possible in each and every episode. However, as Aristotle said, the purpose of knowledge is action, not knowledge. So, I hope you're deriving some useful knowledge from the show, and I hope it's improving the actions you are taking in your life. Speaking of action, if you want to dive deeper into the big ideas explored in this show, please sign up for my newsletter titled The Freedom Analyx at breedlove22.substack.com. Also, have you bought your tickets for Bitcoin 2022 in Miami yet? If not, it's your lucky day as I am giving away 10 million sats, which is roughly 4,000 US dollars to one lucky person who buys a conference ticket through my affiliate link. My affiliate link can be found on my Twitter profile at breedlove22, which also has a link. My Twitter profile has a link to my link tree, which you can also visit my link tree directly for links to all my work, including... Bitcoin 2022 affiliate cells. My link tree is linktr.ee backslash breedlove 22 Thank you so much. I appreciate you guys watching the show. I hope you're finding some valuable knowledge in the What Is Money show, and I'll see you back here again next time.